sermon, Loving God's People. I, somebody asked me what I was preaching on this morning, and I told them his, his words were this. Boy, it's easy to love God. It's hard to love his people sometimes. Is that true? So we're going to spend a few weeks in this. <laughs> Because it is so important. You cannot have one without the other. Love Christ, love his word, and love his people. They have to go together. You drop one of those out of there, you have a very dysfunctional group of people. We don't want to be that. (laughs) So this one we're going to have to put a little work to, and it might get a little uncomfortable as we start to think about some of these things. And I can't think of anything more precious than the church than the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. It is the greatest organization ever known to man. It will never fail. Governments and kings and leaders will come and go. All of those will be destroyed, but the church will remain for all of eternity. Because we're not just a church here that meets at Riverbend. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our eternal destiny, our eternal state has been solved in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who are true believers will live forever as the bride of Christ. And so it is the most amazing organization that God has ever put together. It is the church. Even his creation, even his world, he will destroy. But not the church. So we got to get this right. we got to work at it. We got to die to self and all those things so that we can say, I love Jesus, I love his word, and I love his people. I want us to say that when we get done with this series. Well, I want to begin with a foundation. I think we need to understand who we are and how the Lord put us together. And so I chose a very familiar passage that Pastor Brian read for us, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, and I invite you to go there as we build this foundation of the body of Christ and who we are with the goal of helping ourselves learn to love what God loves. Can you say with confidence that God loves you? What about the person next to you, the people behind you, the people on this side of the building? That's in, right, right? So do you, do you believe that? God loves you. So if he loves you, he loves all the others he saved. So if we, if we want to pursue true holiness, we need to learn what God loves and love what God loves. And we need to hate what God hates as well. But here we're going to learn to love God's people. Let me start with our first point. Number one, the body of Christ is made up of loyal individuals, individual worshiping members. Let me say that again. The body of Christ is made up of loyal individual worshiping members. It's, it, it's rooted in this text. Now, notice in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Well, that therefore, if you're a student of the Bible, you're going, therefore, is kind of linking to what's past, but... What an amazing chapters 9 through 11. And oh, a lot of people have different views on this. But it is an amazing chapter that talks about the love of God through, through the Jews and to the Gentiles and to the church. And then he ends it all with this great statement. You'll see that in chapter 
11, right at the end of chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable of his ways. After he gets done with a passage that we're all still working on to try to get our full minds around, I think we will for many, many years, he says, God's ways are unending. I heard one old preacher say it this way a long time ago. If you trail down a a view and understanding of God and it leads to five other aspects of him. And those lead to five others and five others. And and it's an infinite understanding of who God is and understanding his character, his person, and all that he is. And Paul just breaks out in worship. And then he goes, as he looks at himself and at at the church for who has known the mind of the Lord or who can become his counselor? It's an obvious answer. No one. No one can be the counselor of God. He further says, or who has first given to him that he might pay them back, that he owes them something. Does God owe us anything? Well, probably eternal judgment. (laughs) Then he just finishes this with this thought that you can spend Days, meditate on this, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And all he can say to end that section is to him be glory forever. Amen. Chapter 12 is the response to that. A life sacrificed for the Lord. And so from this statement, Paul now urges the brethren to live in light of the mercies that you received. This is the word brethren. Think about that. I love that term. We probably don't use it enough. Brethren. It has to mean family. There's some sense of family there, right? And so here this family members, he's urging family members, the members of the body of Christ, members of the household of God. That's another term we have for the church, the household of faith, the household of God. Brethren. And it's a special term. It's used only for the elect, for those who experience God's mercy. It is not for those who have never tasted the mercy of God in a salvific way. Only the redeemed can make up the body of Christ. There is no one who gets in the back door, who comes in some other way. All true members of Jesus Christ's church came solely through Jesus Christ alone. Through faith and grace. And here the word mercy is used. The unsaved, the un, or the Bible refers to the natural man. He cannot discern these things. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 tells us that they are a, they're, they're, they're unappraised of it. They they can't see the value of being a Christian, being in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because they have not tasted his mercy. And so here when we look at this term, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, this mercy is a solidary connection to the diversity of the body of Christ. This mercy has made you and I brethren. You and I didn't do it on our own. God did it. His mercy made me your brother and you my sister, you my brother. You, he made us family through his mercy. Boy, don't forget that. In churches who do, struggle. If your brother or sister sins, go to them. It's a relationship. You solve these things, right? This is a beautiful thing. 
And so I love this mercy and this word brethren together. They just stuck out to me. There's such a connection that makes us so diverse, but yet one here as he's going to teach us. And if you're a true follower of Christ, what you have in common with this entire church is the fact that you've received mercy. And that reflects in the power of our salvation because you, like me, were dead, but now you're alive. This is the mark of mercy. You're blind, but now you see. You were lost, and now you're found. God has demonstrated his kindness and love towards us. As undeserving as we were. Think about this. The brethren are forgiven and free people. We're forgiven. The majority of the world is unforgiven. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I, I hate to break this news to you. I hope you already know it. God has not forgiven your sins yet. And you will pay for them. The difference between those of us who our faith alone is in Jesus Christ alone is Jesus paid for our sins. God is just. He, did, he took all the weight that I deserved, all the sin, all the condemnation, and he put it on Jesus. So we're not saying we're better than you. We're just telling you very clearly from the Bible that we are forgiven because of Jesus. And you are not. You need him. You will stand and he will judge you for your own sins. Oh, I beg you that you would not stand for your own sins. That you would stand and say, I am here solely because of your son's perfect and completed work. That's what we'll say to our father when we meet him. So we are forgiven. Our Lord appeased his father's wrath. Reconciled us. That means he changed our position. He justified us. He declared us eternally righteous so that we can be in the righteous presence of the Father. We are being conformed now daily to the image of his Son and we're given divine sonship. <laughs> Dead people to heirs <laughs> of the throne of God. Astounding, isn't it? I mean, can I get an amen somewhere, please? Because, listen, I'm going to burst here when you start to think about what I deserve and where I am. That's you, brother, sister. We have what we do, what we do not deserve. I mean, we have now this joint heirs with Jesus, Romans 8 tells us. And think about this. This is why salvation is so fun and so encouraging to talk about. God said, I want to mark you in a way so that you'll never be lost. So I'm going to place you. I'm going to mark you with my spirit. And I'll put him within you. And he will reside permanently with you. Don't sequester him. Don't quench him. Let him have full reign of the house. But I'm going to mark you with it. And I'll pour my own love into your heart, Romans 5. And I'm going to seal you. And I'm going to mark you with my spirit. And because of this, we are granted faith and peace and hope and honor and given a share of his glory. See, this is the soul-winning mercy that Paul's talking about. Here's what he's trying to drive home to the individual Christian, Christ-loving, Christ-serving, Christ-exalting member of the body of church. He wants us to get this. Many members, one body, motivated by undeserved mercy. That's what he's after. Just this morning, a dear friend sent me a quote from a dead guy. 
I love dead guys. Their theology doesn't change. J.C. Ryle said this, and I want you to think about this, because this is you. A converted man or woman is happy because he or she has peace with God. His or her sins are forgiven. His or her conscience is free from the sense of guilt. He can look forward to death, judgment, eternity, and not feel afraid. What an immense blessing to feel forgiven and free. (laughs) Way to go, JC. What a reminder of who we are and what mercy has done. So with that statement, we have to get this through our heads. The church is not some country club. I am not here to wait on you. None of the elders are. There's nobody at those front doors who are there really as a waiter. They greet you and love you, and I I love our greeting group. Thank you for doing that, men and women. But we're not a country club. We're not here to try to sell you in the best children's ministry and the best music. We're a family, and we serve one another. And that American church has lost that in so many, so many places. We've become this entertaining, and we have to entertain you enough to keep you, and hopefully you'll give you some funds, and we'll make our budget. It's such a dangerous, slippery slope. And with that, we've got to get rid of certain terminologies, right? Sin? You're going to teach on sin? It's got to get empty the church when you do that. Are you going to teach on election? Oh. They're all going to leave. No, we're going to be faithful to the text because we're not a country club. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We belong to him. We do as he says. We hold to his word, verse by verse, word by word. We believe it to be infallible, without error, and sufficient for everything in life. And so we come as a family. See, the biblical expectations should be on every member's heart. If we really want to get to the church that's described in the Bible, and believe me, the Bible always sets it here and we're, we're working our way and we're growing in our sanctification. But if we really want that, it's every member without exception is fulfilling the role that God has. And I, th- I would say, to be honest, that's the core of the church so that we're ready for those who God continues to bring to the church. So every member ready to lay down their life for the other members as Jesus did for us. It's learning to react to one another because of the mercy of you received. Quick to forgive. Quick to give your seat. Quick to fill a need. See, mercy, if you've understood mercy, that's what drives you. You have to do these things. It's not you have to, you want to do them. Happy is the man whose sins have been given, J.C. Ralph said. Happy, ready to serve. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved, if you have love for one another. It's hmm. a good question. Visitors in here, if you're new to our church, have we been evident at all around you that we love one another? I, I hope, please come talk to me if we haven't. I want to fix that. But if you're new to our church and you walked in here, can you tell that we love one another? 
Now, certainly, I hope you can tell we love Jesus and we love his word because we're going to preach it. And it's, we preach a little longer probably than some other churches. It's okay. It's a lot of time in our lives. But we are learning to love one another because of the mercy God has given us. And I trust you see that. Oh, oh, the old apostle John, the last of the disciples, he had heard Jesus say that, and he put it into print by the inspiration of the Spirit. In 1 John 3, 11, he said, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love Christ. Love his word. Love his people. Now, individually, we offer our lives as living and holy sacrifices to God. This is what this verse says, right? Paul calls it spiritual worship. So mercy grips your soul, and now mercy affects you physically, right? It gets into your, it grabs you spiritually, right? And, and gets a hold of your heart and uh, transforms your life, right? Because that's what grace and mercy do. But it does something physical. These are physical terms. Live as living and holy sacrifices. These are physical so it can't just be a spiritual reality that we have for an hour and a half or two or three hours on Sunday and then we go live like our flesh. It, it can't be that. Now notice he says about this body. The body is to be presented. So there's a presentation of this physical body in this verse. And, and as we see this unfold in this practice, it's to be done collectively so individually, we are giving our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord because of the mercy we have received. When we collectively do that, we now represent the body of Christ and he actually says, I'm gonna use you now. <laughs> and you're not gonna be a country club. You're actually gonna be a tool in the master's hands. I love this word present. Um, Parathesomy is the word. It's translated, I think, in most of the translations to present. It's the idea, listen to this, to put oneself at the disposal of another. That's what the Greek word means. God, we are at your disposal. We're not here for us, what we can get out of this place and what they can do for us lately. We are here at your disposal. This is what Paul is trying to lead the Roman church in the first century to, and Quite frankly, pastors down through the ages have been trying to do as well. And so there's a physical body that houses the soul, right? And so that soul, this inner change that takes place at salvation must transform and, and transform more into the image of the Lord, right? So though our souls are cleansed, that's our position, and, and they're ready for eternity. Once you're saved, you're ready to spend eternity with God. The body, the person, this, this human, still has to deal with sin. And we refer to that often as the term, I, I use this, I stole it from somebody, uh, unredeemed humanness about us. And that's what we talk about sanctification. There's initial sanctification where God calls us, makes us his. We now belong to him by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no movement to that. He just declares us righteous. Boom. There's initial. But then there's this progressing into the image of Christ. This is what we should be doing as a church. Moving individually, growing to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So collectively now we resemble the body of Christ. That's his goal with us. And so our bodies 
incorporate our humanness. Our humanness incorporates our flesh, and our flesh incorporates the sin that we often deal with. And so there's a struggle there. So Paul reminds the church in many different places, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, in a sense, who is in you, right? That's him dwelling within you. Whom you have from God, that you are not your own. So that's the uniqueness about a believer. You say, well, I believe in that Jesus, I think. So you sold out. See, the Bible doesn't talk about this halfway Christianity. We talk about it. We try to go, well, I think he's a believer. I, I think they said a prayer. One time I saw him walk an aisle. The Bible never describes Christianity that way. It just doesn't. We feel sorry for people and we're careful, and I, I think we should be in, in some sense, but the Bible declares a Christian to be fully sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sets that as the biblical standard, and we are constantly, by the grace of God, the work of the Spirit and the Word in our life, are moving towards that. That's what he does for us. And so, he pushes us to realize that our lives now are worship. We're worshipers. I urge you, verse 1, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living. <laughs> you got to read on that word living. Some of the writers are pretty funny. One said, I, I have to remind my church of that. <laughs> we're living. We're alive. <laughs> but we're holy. And we're a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. That word acceptable is so important because everybody says, well, I'm good. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Everybody goes, every good people go to heaven. No, no. To be acceptable to God, you have to come his way and only his way. There's no other way that is acceptable to God. There's a very wide gate and a very wide road that leads to destruction that all those other views are on. But this, the Bible says it's a narrow gate and it's a narrow road. That's what he accepted. And when we do that, notice our lives turn into the spiritual service of worship. I gotta get going. Number two, the body of Christ is made up of those being transformed and renewed as they pursue the will of God. I don't know if we have notes today, but here we go. Let me say it again. The body of Christ is made up of those being transformed and renewed as they pursue the will of God. Look at verse two with me. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we've talked about the positional and the progressive, right? Positional, we're set there, God did all that work, there's no movement to it. Progressive is God is transforming us into the image of a son daily. He's always working on us and shaping us and molding us and helping us as the work of the Spirit and the Word, right? Now, this is the answer to verse 1, how we become this living sacrifice, right? This helps us do this. And you say, well, how does a member pursue this spiritual service of worship? Well, because of mercy, you now, notice in the verse 2, you don't be conformed to this world. Now, 
the word conforms an interesting word if you look it up in your Greek concordance or something like that, you'll see it's translated possibly middle or possibly passive. But it's an, it's an imperative, so it's a command. It's, it's you don't, don't be conformed. Don't, it's not saying, well, maybe think about not acting like the world. It's not saying, don't be conformed. But then if it's a middle, middle is always means there's kind of a decision it needs to make. Am I going to, to, to flee from the world and run after God? That, that's what a middle would be translated. And a passive is all of that's happening to me. And, and there's some guys, as we look at this and read some on the Greek, and just I remember a professor telling me that there's times we look at this that I, I think the meaning says, I decide to let the mercy and the gospel transform me. I, I make a step and say, I, I trust you, God, that your gospel and your cross work will transform me, and I, I'm willing to die to my own life. And I will now turn from the world. That it's interesting that word conform, uh, conformed is um, the word we get our English word masquerade from. And so I think what he's saying there is do not masquerade any longer as something you're not. Christians, we don't live like this. A foot in the world and a foot in Christianity. It's so dangerous, brothers and sisters, we get confused. Uh, our theology of God starts to change. We start to doubt things in the scripture because the world is, its goal is to destroy you. In fact, the world that word there for world is aeon. It is the Greek word more of the idea of this age. Same word is used in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. I was very clear on that just a moment ago. In whose case the God of this aeon, world, age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. John said it this way, 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so Paul says, do you want to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God? Don't conform to this world. You are not spiritual because you shun the world. You grow in the image of Christ because mercy is helping you see the wrongness of the world and the rightness of God. It's mercy that does that. Otherwise, you have all kinds of groups, right? You have Amish and all kinds of groups that they don't do this and they don't do that and they don't eat this and they don't go that and they certainly don't sit with, sit with you and so forth, right? See, brothers and sisters, it's mercy that we have received that stops us from being conformed to the patterns of this world, this age. Word transformed is the same word we get for metamorphosize, it's really the Greek word, it, like a butterfly comes out, it, it is passive, it is imperative, and so it says submit or allow the glory of God to transform you. Second Corinthians 3.18, you're being, being, continual, present tense, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, he's transforming us. And so in this transformation lifestyle, motivated by mercy, we have received and can prove what is now good, what is now acceptable, what is the perfect will of God. You can do that. I ask a lot of times, go, oh, Scott, what's the will of, what's God's will for my life? This verse right here. <laughs> You'll never find the will of God if you live in sin. 
It just won't. It's so confusing. It's so hard to do. You're just, you don't know what's of God and what's not because your flesh is all tied up in it. Don't be conformed to the world. Say, God, I am going to give you my life, and I promise you he'll show you where he's taking you. God's will for our life is not a nut and shell game. God's will for our life is to obey him and enjoy him and live with him forever. He loves you. Moms and dads in here, you would not deceive your children. Well, choose rightly, son. (laughs) Garbage man (laughs) or prince. (laughs) Sorry, garbage man. We really need you. I hope we pay you enough. (laughs) Got to be careful when you do that. But think about that. That's our God. He loves us. And he wants to lead us, and that's the way you find the will of God. So just think of a church that rejects the confirmation of the world, but instead, individually, brothers and sisters, allow their minds and their hearts to be transformed daily by the word of God. Imagine a church like that, or at least a core. A large core, so we're ready for those who come in to do missions around the world, to, to, to be able to stand when the heat comes from the government and all those other things, because we're standing on Jesus. Imagine a church like that. There'd be no doubt we will know his will, and we'll have peace even in the most difficult times. Three, our God-given measure of faith with a correct estimation of ourselves produces our spiritual service of worship. Trust me, this was the wrong day not to have these up here. They're long, aren't they? Let me read it again. Our God-given measure of faith with a correct estimation of ourselves produces our spiritual service of worship. Look at verse three with me. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone, there's always that person that doesn't think this is about them, so Paul says everyone, among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, thinking highly of ourselves does not accomplish verse 1. It does not accomplish us to come and be living holy sacrifices that are acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Thinking highly of yourself stops verse 1 and verse 2. In fact, it goes farther than that. It robs God from his glory, and it robs the church of the goal of collectively being an instrument for God. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But notice it says, through the grace given. Mm. Even, in a, even in a rebuking verse like this, notice grace is in it. Because every one of us think too much about ourselves too often probably. I can, pro- I can prove it. Who was the first person you thought of when you woke up this morning? Tired, gotta go to the bathroom. Wonder if we can get those kids going. Or whatever, right? We, we're natural thinkers of ourselves. Uh, we, we, and, and we're working on it, and by God's mercy, we're learning to think, of, think him, put him first. That's a great statement, harder to do, um, but we do think of ourselves. And so there's always grace in here. I love this, through the grace given to us. So it, by God's grace, it allows us and will keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. See, grace beats pride. Got some struggles with pride? 
Grace is your answer. Grace beats it. Grace breaks the pride in our hearts and it allows us to joy, to joyfully find our unique and designated role within the family of God, how he wants us to serve him. So grace breaks down that. Notice in the latter middle of the verse, he says in verse three, of sound judgment. We ought not think of ought to think that way, but to think as so as to have sound judgment. Well, I think this is a key thought here. Sound judgment does not start with self-evaluation <laughs> or, or a high esteem of yourself. That's not where sound judgment starts. Because what you do is you just believe in your own gifts and how great you are and how much the church needs you. But sound judgment is for making accurate assessments of your spiritual condition. We always... We always... Um, I want to assess ourselves, probably not like the word. We either, too, we assess ourselves too high, we're, you know, we're arrogant, we're prideful, or we're like, you know, Christian Eeyore. Does everybody understand? You younger people, do you know who Eeyore is? I'm looking at a group, right? You know who he is? Okay, good. I didn't want to shoot that over your head or something. I think that's what happens a lot. And I think the Bible gets us in the middle to, to grace brings us to the point where we can evaluate ourselves the way the Bible evaluates us. Because you want to evaluate yourself the way God evaluates us. You don't want to evaluate yourself the way you are because you always do either one or the other. You want to look at the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible, memorize the Bible so you can have a right estimation, think the word estimation can be translated there, you want to have a right estimation of who you are and where you're at so the things that need to be changed, you can submit to God so they'll change. The things that you're doing well for him, he'll bless and you can use those more for the Lord. See, I think that's what he's getting after. Instead of learning to bend the knee to God, we overestimate ourselves we don't bend our need at all. And so there's a fundamental temptation to overestimate the importance of ourselves, even in the church. I, I hate to say this to you, and I'm saying it to me too. God does not need any one of us. I know it hurts. Your parents told you you're the greatest thing, and you can do anything you want. It was on commercials that said just be who you want to be, right? The commercials told you. Yeah, you go out and be what your flesh wants to be. We'll see how that works. Believe me, we don't want to be who our flesh wants us to be. But listen, let me say this, and I've said this many times. God loves to use nobodies. Because they have now come to the point where they have a right evaluation of themselves. They own their sin. They give glory and praise to God if something of their life is used for him. There's a great estimation there. Notice this measure of faith at the end of verse 3. God has allowed it to each a measure of faith. It's an interesting term. Well, I believe this is a faith common to all believers. Uh, I, I don't think this is a saving faith here. I think it's a common faith to live in this life. But God gives the exact amount of faith as a resource best suited for each individual to live by faith and serve Christ as their Savior in their circumstances. And sometimes he gives an extra measure of faith because he asks a lot of some people. We've seen that in this last year. When one of our dear ministers here buries his four-year-old, him and his wife, 
God gave them an extra measure of faith. And I couldn't be more proud of Josh and Victoria. And some of you, some of you have gone through illnesses this year. God gives you an extra measure of faith, and I see you here today. You're here. You could be home wallowing around, feeling sorry for yourself, but you're here. God give you an extra measure of faith to get through that. See, he does that for us. So when we believe the Bible, and we believe that it's saying that the one who comes to God with this humble estimation of his or herself and finds and then seeks to say, God, show me the center of your will in the, in the church where my role is, and then uses that measure of faith to glorify God, you will be that living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Fourth, we individually make up the body of Christ through unity and diversity. We individually make up the body of Christ through unity and diversity. Verses four and five. For just as we are many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are, the, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, these verses provide a sense of equality in, in one aspect, unity, you, you hear diversity in these verses, but at the same time you hear oneness and togetherness of the body of Christ. These are amazing verses. And it's so important to grasp that when Christ, listen, when Christ stepped out of heaven, he became the incarnate one, right? He, it, we see him bodily form. He's born of a, mar- a, a virgin, born under the law. He's born in a manger there. He lives this life. He's a young man. We see him at 12, when, and then we see him at his, around 30, and his ministry starts and so forth, and he lives these per- perfect three years in front of us. But he is God incarnate. But that God incarnate was followed his father's plan on this earth, and he followed it to the cross, and then he followed it to the grave, he followed it to the resurrection, and then he followed it right back to the right hand of the Father. So now, Christ's incarnate body is seen in the church. Now, it's deep here, and we're swimming in the deep end of the pulpit. Think with me here. If he resides in us, and us in him, the Bible says, then then now we, and he gives us the title of the body of Christ, then we now represent the incarnate Christ here. We are not the incarnate Christ, but we represent the incarnate Christ. So when people look at us, they should see Jesus in some way or another. I know that's deep, and I want you to think about that for a little bit and let me know what you think about it. We are the picture of Christ to the dying world. That's why we have to get over petty problems. Forgive one another when we hurt one another. Fix marriages. Churches failed at this. Forgive one another. Help those who have problems. Help them. We are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important, brothers and sisters. We are now a picture of the incarnate Christ. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, Paul said, Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Want another one? Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but lives in me. We're that picture. And I love the diversity. You see it in this text. There's these many functions, right, but not all in the same function. 
And so he gives us such diversity. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. All these things are true, right? There are Jews and there are Greeks. There's slavery and there's people who are not in slavery. There's neither male or female. For all are one in Christ. And so even though there's all that diversity, we're one in Christ. And so God has different roles for men and women. Let's make that clear. The world's really muddying that stuff up. But in Christ, we all stand in equality because we stand in his finished work. Now, God has given us a measure of faith, and the Spirit has gifted each of us to accomplish inside the unity and the diversity of this, of this body here, the goals he set before us. But notice it says many members in one body. But diversity does not mean the same function, right? And I think what's so beautiful about this word picture is this indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each believer, but yet it highlights this unifying factor that the Spirit gives us by, by residing with us and then gifting us. And the Father has already gifted us with faith and all accomplished through the finished work of Christ. And so now you have this picture of a physical body. The church is like a physical body, arms pumping, legs swinging, toes grabbing, fingernails growing. Well, I don't know what you are. You pick the thing hair, ears, all of that, all moving in the same direction. Man, if we could get there. Mm. That's when he starts really using a church. We die to self and run. We keep doing this because it's not for our glory, it's for his. Because of the mercy he gave us. Paul just gives us very visual, spiritually inspired word picture here. Look at verse five with me again. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You can't divide the body up. If you kick me, I hope somebody out there hurts. And vice versa. When you're cut, I should bleed. Isn't that what the Bible's saying here? You get surgery on your foot, your head's going to feel it, right? See, we're, we're one body. We're, we're not a church with two left feet. We're just going to go in circles. And I think that's what happens to us sometimes. The right foot's not working. And so we just keep going around. I mean, I was listening to somebody who was just declaring the glory of God and he was going through the fingerprints of a person's hand. <laughs> Evolution. There's no way. It's a marking of a creator and a designer to do all these things. And so many members and yet such diversity. And you can't divide up this body. Many parts uniquely, they play important roles. 1 Corinthians 12 says that foot can't say to the hand, well, I'm with the hand, right? It goes through that whole sample there. The body functions in its diversity. What part are you? Fifth, the global unity and diversity of the body of Christ. Verse 5, just a little phrase there. It says, who are many in our one body? Again, the fifth point is a global unity and a diversity of the Bible excuse me, a diversity of the body of Christ. A global unity and diversity of the body of Christ. It says, who are many but one body? Now, Paul, Paul's the only apostle that actually teaches on this, um, this subject of, of one body, many, many members, one body, using that language. Um, but this is what he was sent to do, to teach the Gentile church this. But there's an important lesson here that I, I don't want to miss. 
And I, th- I think it's easy. We've heard this. And, and I know if you're like me, we're thinking about our role here at this church. And am I a member of this? And, and am I filling my role? I hope you're doing. But I think we make a grave mistake when we don't think globally about this passage. This passage is speaking far more than just the local assembly that meets at Riverbend Church. And it's tempting for us to think of organizations and buildings and earthly things and maybe denominations and even, but it goes so far beyond that. It goes so far beyond the world, beyond the, the, this, these walls to the world, and God sets the example. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, God speaking, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up, speaking about Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. So God sets the agenda. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he's made two bodies, two groups into one. We're now the church made up of Jews and Gentiles and male and female and employees and employers and all kinds of group, rich and wealthy and poor, and it's made up of all kinds. But if we find ourselves only thinking about this local ministry, we miss it. And I just want you to think a little different. The body of Christ is around the globe. Next week, I'm going to show you a video, Lord willing, <laughs> Hayward, that I can get that loaded, and I'm going to show you a video of the Congo church. They received our gift, not only ours, but churches all around the world, and people are giving to this. They're coming here to this church, and we're supplying what they need every week over the, for these four churches, and they gave them shoes. The kids got their Christmas present was shoes. They probably didn't get anything else, but they got shoes. They are part of us. Ton in Spain is part of us. Nilo in the Philippines is part of us. Kyla and Della in North Africa are part of us. Patty in Ireland are part of us. Melvin and Hernan in Honduras are part of us, and et cetera, et cetera. All those other missionaries we support, think about that. They're part of us, and this goes beyond that. And so there must be more of a connection to just money, right? If this is true. And, and, and brothers, this is why I travel, um, because I want to take you to them. And I want to bring them back to you so that you see the connection here. And we raise up young men who go out and seek Christ and put their lives on the line for missions, as we're going to see this next week. And there's more coming, because it's bigger than us. That's why we have to get this right, so he'll use us in the Congo. He'll use us in Scotland. And other places. Six, and I got to close with this, and this is short. Six, issues that create or distract from the unity and diversity of the church. I'm going to get to these. I'm gonna, let me just give you some questions. And you may not like some of them, but I'm going to give them to you. And these are what I'm going to be handling over the next few weeks as we do this. So in order to help us love God's people, here's a few questions that I just jotted down. I have more I'm thinking about. Here's some that I jotted down. And there are no in particular order. Would you categorize yourself as being a strength or a weakness to the church? Ooh, started out with a toughie, didn't I? Am I a strength or a weakness to the church? Now, please don't be offended and say, well, I'm a weakness, I'm leaving. No, no, no. You need, you need other people who are nobodies to help you live for the Lord Jesus, right? We need each other. But it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? 
Am I a strength or a weakness to the church? Two, when do you prepare for Sunday morning worship? We're going to talk about that question. And do we arrive at church as worshipers? Is there a switch we flip on in the car, on the way, or at the front door, or does that switch start Saturday night or Thursday afternoon when you had time with the Lord? When does that switch come on? Or should it ever be off? But if we're honest with ourselves, it is off at times. So we've got to tackle that. See, this was an interesting, I actually read this somewhere else and stole it, but if you arrived 15 minutes early to church, what would you do with your time? question, isn't it? We'll talk about it. Pray, greet, eat donuts. I, I don't know. I just you have to answer the question. And then the follow-up question, what are your goals when the church service ends? Good question, isn't it? Some of you are going, he's pushing it right now. <laughs> Cracker barrel's falling up. Calvary's letting out. Traffic's getting bad. A couple more. Do you take advantage of the unheralded ministry of singing loud with making a joyful noise? Now, you guys did really good today, so I can't harp on you about this one, but are you a mumbler? Is all that mercy and kindness and grace of God as we lay to the salvation, is it coming forth? Because the Bible says whatever's in your heart's going to come out of your tongue. Do you sing like it's your last service? One very wise preacher said that a preacher is to preach like a dying man to dying people. I try to do that. I'm dying. (laughs) I don't know when, but I'm dying. And I'm pouring everything I got. Are you? A couple more. How effective would our church be if if prayer outweighed gossip? And ponder the question, what happened to prayer meetings in the local American church? Prayer outweighed gossip. How concerned are you with the next generation who will care for the affairs of the church long after we're gone? There's a lot of work that goes on down the hall. We don't replace parents. We merely come alongside them, but we need help. And then learning to train parents to have their children in church. That doesn't happen overnight. It needs time. It needs time to help them for a little while. But we want children in this service. Teach them to listen. Teach them to be young worshipers. And then finally, how do we open the door to spirit-driven volunteerism and lay leadership? That's a question for us elders. We're working on that. There's men in this room that I believe need to be elders in this church. Move if God's pushing you, not Scott. Move, volunteer, find ways. When you hear announcements and you know that I need help, go do it. (laughs) See what God does. Father, help us. This is a hard one, Lord. We love your son. He is just the most amazing. He did so much. He did everything for us. And we love your word. We have it. We, we, we've been Christians for a long time, and we love our Bibles. We love to read them. 
But sometimes, Lord, we have a hard time loving one another. We're nitpickers, Lord. We don't forgive like you do. So we ruin marriages and friendships and hurt churches. So, Lord, help us to love your people. We can't do it without you, Lord. And then, Lord, you use us as many members but one body for your glory. We pray that you would do that in this church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, man, what a great, great, great reminder of what unifies us, um, not just in this building but as believers. Um, It is indeed the gospel, right? Um, I think about many times the relationships I have in this church. Um, I've been here a long time, since 1998. I heard that. Whoever just whistled. (laughs) Been here a lot. (laughs) I literally heard that. Um, um, Been here a long time, and I keep thinking to myself, what unites me with the friendships I have is the gospel. I would not know the people I know if it were not for Jesus. I wouldn't have my wife, my children, if it was not for Jesus. It unites us, right, church? The gospel. So when Pastor Scott was mentioning those missionaries, we are one with them because of the gospel. It brings us together. And this song goes perfectly. And it, it's amazing, Pastor Scott. Every week people are like, did you play that song? I was like, I just found out last night like 8.30 what he was preaching, so I have no idea. But this song goes perfectly with what he just said. So church, let's stand and let's sing this song together. There is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. And oh, what a gospel, oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever he is my light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I stand in the 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is one, we do not walk alone. We have His Spirit as we press on to lead us safely home. And when in glory still I will sing of His soul story that rescued me. Praise to my Savior, the King. things. I couldn't ask for a better song. Thank you, Lord, by the mercies, by the mercies of you, God. You have caused us and made us be people who can and have everything we need to be living and holy, acceptable offerings to you, Lord, which is our spiritual worship to you. Lord, help us not be conformed to this world that has nothing to offer us, It will die in vain. Help us be sold out for you, but loving the lost. Wanting them to know you, Lord. And then, Lord, help us live as one body with many members with the same goal. Lord, then you'll use us, both here and abroad. And you'll continue to use River Bend as a trophy of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.